This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 115. We're recording on Thursday, July 16th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Jeff O'Neill and Amanda Nelson because it's a very good day. And we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Greetings. Good, good morning. It's kind of like when there's uh, a tragedy in the family that everyone gets together. <laughs> right? I mean, for comfort and support. Uh, it's a ghost at a Watchmen week on almost on the internet, I would say. Yes. Certainly on the book internet. Uh, but it's bubbled up into it's uh, out mainstream in the wider culture. world. Totally. And Amanda, Amanda, no better example, was on CNN International, uh, a very nice spot talking about uh, Ghost at a Watchmen. I like how you corrected him when he said it was a sequel. That was my favorite part, I think. When I corrected the host? Actually, it's not a sequel, you British moron. Um, so <laughs> you, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and also how he said book right with a, with a weird British accent to book right. Um, Achievement unlocked. Yeah, Go it was, it was all actually on a television host. We have the YouTube for that, so we'll drop that in the show notes. Sorry, Amanda. Actually, you know what? You are on national, international television. Our readers watching you on YouTube is like the least of what should make you nervous at this point. Um, but you did yeah. a great job there. I'm over that. I just- <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. So we're going to talk about Ghost of the Watchmen for a good half the show. Um, but first, let's do a little follow up. Follow me up here. Uh, Last week, we talked about Hachette Australia's plan to offer someone a free dragon tattoo all over her back uh, in exchange for three months of free work uh, as to be used in advertising for the girl with the dragon tattoo or actually for the girl in the spider's web, which is the fourth book in the Stieg Larson series, which is coming out this fall. Um, I called it dumb. The internet rolled its eyes a great deal. And Hachette Australia has now decided to cancel the tat advertising promotion, uh, though, unfortunately, we are now all saddled with the word tat advertising uh, in the vernacular because uh they they said people were offended. I didn't see anyone be offended. The Verge did call it predatory and desperate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will stand by. It's dumb. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't see a lot of offense. Just a lot of what is this? <laughs> I think it's yeah. It's good CYA that they're doing with like people were offended, so we're being nice by responding to their offense and canceling it. But really, this was just bad idea committee, and they realized it too late. Uh, so they've decided not to do this campaign. I still think they should do the thing we talked about last week and just find real women who already have Lisbeth Salander inspired dragon tattoos and and do that. But um, regardless, the world is now safe from at least one bad book marketing plan. This is going to come back. Someone's going to do this. You know, someone's going to do some sort of you know, because boxers do stuff like this, like they get like gold gym tattooed on their back and they get a bunch of money for it. I'm afraid we're going to see this again. Um, this is too, this has, this is a bad idea, mm-hmm. committee catnip. Well, and it's not the first time that publishers have done 
something with tattoos. I can't remember no. if I talked about this on the show last week or offline, but $2 Radio, which is a small publisher, oh, um, right. has a standing offer that anyone who gets their logo um, as a tattoo and their logo is a little like transistor radio uh, looking thing, gets like every book that they publish for that person's lifetime. Um, and our own Liberty has one. She has uh, full sleeves and in her sleeves, there's a, in one of her sleeve uh, tattoos, there's a little $2 Radio logo. And I she's not the only one who has that so it, it has so worked you get free books for yeah. life mm-hmm. well because you know who's desperate for books it's liberty, it's liberty yeah. <laughs> no no one is more starving she's just shoving books. them in the oven at this point like <laughs> she's got nowhere else to put them no literally i went to sleep over at her house a few years ago and there were books in the oven yeah me imagining liberty reading is kind of like that scene from fargo with a chipper shredder she's just like throwing books and just like that's how she goes through them. But I, I mean, that's cool. It's a tiny logo. You can put it just about anywhere. It's not yeah. a full back piece that then you have to trade your body for marketing. Right. And um, you're not going to be on billboards in Perth about, right. your, you know, whatever. I'm glad to see this one uh, go in the garbage can. Yeah. Okay. So we're gearing up. Let's do, let's, we got to do our first sponsor and then we'll get it to go. So to Watchmen, it's Scribd. Scribd is back. Um, the cool thing this week, is, you know, I, this is what we call um, content marketing. Because this week, I think you... Synergy. I don't know if we were... I think we're more positively excited about um, Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Did I say that right? Ta-Nehisi. Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, his new book, Between the World and Me, coming out. It came up on, on Tuesday as well. Very interesting pairing with Ghost of Watchmen. Um, we might talk more about that. But it is available as an audiobook on Scribd right now. And Scribd is the book subscription service. It gives you unlimited access to a library of more than half a million books and audiobooks. The audiobook titles, that's one thing we've talked about before. Haven't really seen that to this point of all you can listen to audiobooks, especially front list. And this is a big one. And um, at Greenlight Bookstore here in uh, the great uh, borough of Brooklyn, uh, Taniasi Coates' um, book has been neck and neck with Ghost of the Watchmen in sales. So there's a lot of people out there. And I think probably among the people who are politically uh, engaged in their reading, this is the book to look forward to. I think we're going to hear a lot more about this. Um, there's a blurb from Toni Morrison on the front that says this is required reading. Um, I don't know if you could ask uh, St. Peter for anyone to write you a blurb. You would do much better than that, at least on this show. Um, and we here gathered would pick. Uh, so scribd.com slash book, right? You can listen to that right now for free because that'll be included in your free month to get started. 30 days of unlimited reading and listening. That's scribd.com slash book, right? S-C-R-I-B-D. And to continue listening and reading comics and eBooks and audiobooks. It's only $8.99 a month. I just happened to see, because I was looking for it myself, that the audio version of uh, Between the World and Me is retailing for 20 bucks on its own. You can listen to it for free. And even if you want to keep on and have to pay a few pennies a month, you're still going to get a great value out of that. So that's Scribd. Thank you so much for your continued support of the show. All right. Oh boy. And here we are. I don't even I don't even know where to start. I was thinking about this as I was burning my coffee this morning. Like where do we even start here? Have you read it? We've all read it. We've all yeah. read it. Thank you, sir. Amanda. Mm-hmm. What do you where do you where do you want to start? Oh, it's the worst. It's the worst. Well, now okay, what's the there we go. What's the worst <laughs> part of it for you? Like what's what's the part that makes you Make that okay. noise. <laughs> Overall impression, right? Okay. Okay. There are some beautiful passages that I underlined and loved. 
and you can tell that it's Harper Lee, you can see the seed of To Kill a Mockingbird in this book. However, um, it's horrible. I mean, it's it's messy, it's sloppy, it's horribly paced. The plotting is really bad. It's 95, the last half of the book is uh, Confederate Army apologetics and explanations of the Southern way of living, quote unquote, and segregation and um, it's, it's Ayn Randian and it's horrible rhetoric and their use of speeches and dialogue to make mm. a point that is dumb. <laughs> and yeah, no, it's really disappointing. Add everything that you love about Atticus Finch is gone. Scout is cool. Like Scout's a really sassy 26 year old. She mouths off a lot. She has a lot of interesting things to say about gender mm. that are still relevant uh, in 2015. But uh, as far as, a, you know, thinking about To Kill a Mockingbird as, as this seminal book about race in this country, Ghost Out of Watchmen is the literal opposite of everything that is good about To Kill a I was afraid. So that's how I feel about it. I was afraid it was going to be embarrassing. Shinsky, did you think it was embarrassing, uh, the book? I don't know. I don't know about it. Well, I think it it doesn't just knock Harper Lee off the pedestal of like beloved anti-racist writer. It sort of explodes the existence of the pedestal. Like if this is where her thinking began or where it was before her editor got a hold of the thing and was like, actually, no, set the thing when Scout's a kid, turn Atticus into a hero. Uh, there are so many things that we're not going to know about whose idea it was to mm-hmm. reshape the book in the way that it is reshaped. I think it's fascinating uh, to be able to see the way that a book that is so beloved and held up as uh, like the great American work of anti-racist fiction, uh, when really To Kill a Mockingbird has problems as well. I I was uh, yes, I am embarrassed for Harper Lee that this really yeah okay. that this early version of her thinking is out there. Like I wouldn't want early drafts of some of the emails that I send yeah. to go out into the world. And uh, writers evolve as they work with editors. Writers evolve as they go through drafts. Publishers are like super touchy about galleys even getting into the hands of readers who don't work in the industry. There was a typo on page 17. Don't don't quote from this. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. no, sir, I've had, you know, publishers yeah, oh, yeah. say, I mean, like, we, a- we want you to throw the book away, throw the galley away or recycle it. Don't pass it on to like a normal reader who just lives out in the world because that's not the author's final finished work and it's not a fair representation of it. And so it just, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's embarrassing. The last, I finished the book this morning and I wish that I were still drawing drunk from last night while I was doing it. Like it's the last 25 pages or so are are like one step away from if you're not nice to people who are racists and if you don't make room for people who are racists and try to understand them, then you're a basically reverse racist. You're a bigot yourself. Like Scout doesn't want to accommodate her fathers and her uncles and her boyfriends membership in the clan the local clan group and they basically all tell her she just doesn't understand and if she judges them for it she's as bad as anybody else um yeah it's i think it's it's bad i thought it's like all the scenes that don't involve scout and atticus talking to each other were super boring the flat the childhood flashbacks were not good the book started really slowly um well the start is this the first 120 pages when it's just her like return to make them it's like it's so bad it's it's well, that's not bad it's boring i guess that's yeah, what I mean. it's boring it's bad <laughs> yeah and like there's like this pattern between her and henry clinton that's like 
trying to be a Hepburn Tracy movie and it just does not work at all. No. And you don't care about Atticus. Like clearly she reveres him from the beginning. But if you hadn't read To Kill a Mockingbird, like what's she talking about her old man? Like he's Dumbledore. Yeah, like, like I don't yeah. get what this is about. <laughs> Um, so, you know, for it to be interesting at all, you have to know, I think, To Kill a Mockingbird relatively well. Right. Which Otherwise, is, it's just like, geez. Which is interesting because this was written, like, this is what How to Kill a Mockingbird started. So when Leave turned in this version of it, there was no, like, presumption that anyone would have any of the information about him from To Kill a Mockingbird. Because yeah. none of that even existed yet. It's, I think that's one of the points I have, I've been keeping in mind the most. And, like, again, if the story we've been given is true... Or even true-ish, right? <laughs> like, forget about how the manuscript was found in the 20-teens. Like, the, the backstory is that this is the manuscript Harper Lee turned into her editor. And presumably, if her editor was said, damn fine job, Harper, let's run with it, this is the version or... This is the book, I guess, we would have gotten from Harper Lee in 1961. And we wouldn't be sitting here in 2015 talking about Harper no, Lee. Cer- no, certainly not. But it, it's... It's a different kind of draft than something that Harper Lee wrote on her own typewriter and then put in a drawer and wrote another draft or like this was her original vision for the book. You know, whatever else you want to uh, – we were fighting about using the word <laughs> I draft. I think you're wrong. Today. Yeah, well, but I'm just, I'm just trying to give some context. Like this isn't something that like, you know, she wrote and then like said do not send to editor. Like we're told and I'm going to at least for the moment – say that that is at least that part is accurate that this is the one she turned in to be published that tells me something about where she was and oh boy does mm-hmm. the editor come out smelling like roses and i mean that's the big yeah. winner yeah um i should remember her name tay uh i'll, I'll find it yeah hand off it was there's i linked to it this week i'll put it in the show notes there was a nice profile uh, in the new york times of her and she saw what i mean there was one mention of the events of To Kill a Mockingbird, like two paragraphs or so, right, about the yeah. original trial? Mm-hmm. And then and there was some flashback stuff. And there's a link that we should find for the show notes also of um, a site put together where you can see sections mm-hmm. of text in Gossetto Watchmen that are identical to To Kill a Mockingbird. But it's so you not can, that much. It's not much at all. It's... Uh, this I think I don't know I I said last week that I'm more inter- I was more interested in this book as a phenomenon than like uh, excited to read it and I think if To Kill a Mockingbird is a sacred text for you as a reader it's not for me um, that this is gonna this is a real rough go um, it is for me and it was a rough go <laughs> <laughs> it was rough it's, I mean I like I cried I don't I cannot tell you the last time I cried reading a book for any reason, like because it was emotionally moving or it upset me. Because your leg anything. was broken. No, yeah, no, nothing. I'm just yeah. not like that's not how I interact with media. But I cried. I was so upset. I was so upset. Like if you go back and look at my tweets after I finished it, I was vibrating with rage about the book. It really it tore me up. It was really upsetting. It was very upsetting. Okay. But I mean, I come at it a little bit differently because this is how I, I love interesting messes. And this is the most interesting possible <laughs> mess I could have asked for. Like I was talking to Michelle about it last night a little. It's like, I mean, of the range of outcomes, it's not the worst. For me personally, it's not the worst outcome because w- there was a possibility that sort of a warmed over version of To Camilla Mockingbird, right? Like it's just not interesting. Mm-hmm. From a thinking or reading perspective, from a reading perspective, it was fascinating. It doesn't hold up as a standalone book. We might talk about the marketing and packaging. I've got some mm-hmm. feelings about that, especially. <laughs> um, but as a as a window 
and another way of thinking about not just To Kill a Mockingbird and Harper Lee, but how literature works, how we think about race, how American literature is formulated. They're like, I have like 15 article ideas to write about it, and I'm never going to write them all because who wants to read all of that? But um, a really, really fecund territory for thinking about how this is because like – this is it also shouldn't be a sacred text, right? Because this is no text like this should be sacred because it's made by fallible human beings. Um, even sacred texts themselves are made by fallible human beings, but that's a conversation yeah, for a I different was, day. I was trying to think about what kind of turnabout. Like, I think that if this were just a warmed over version of To Kill a Mockingbird, they also wouldn't, there wouldn't have been any real reason to publish it. It had to be yeah. surprising enough and different enough. And unfortunately, it's surprising and different in bad ways, <laughs> unflattering ways for Harper Lee um, and to make it notable to make it worth talking about. And so it was savvy to publish it for that reason, because you got we got the headlines last week of uh, it turns out that Atticus Finch is a racist. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, man. I, I, so I have a question for you. So this manuscript existed. It was in a lockbox somewhere. It was original. The original vision Harper Lee had for her first book. And it was this is a real thing. Do you wish you had never known about it. No. no. Why so? You're even glad the, to know, even the shaking with rage tears? Well, I think it's necessary to begin to have that. I mean, um, especially right now, considering how things are like in current events with race, race relations in America, the um, To Kill a Mockingbird is the book that I think a lot of white people hold up as like, evidence that racism is over. Right. Because but I like I like Atticus Finch, so I can't be a racist, you know. And um, Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird is an archetype. He's not a human being. He's not. He's a paragon of goodness. He's not real. He, he has no flaws. Um, there's nothing wrong with him. He's and, Gandalf the White, basically. Yeah, exactly. And and that's fine to love that. I love that. I love Atticus, and I love To Kill a Mockingbird. But that's not a real thing. You can't look at To Kill a Mockingbird or that character as evidence about anything in reality. And Ghost at a Watchman is reality, you know. That's what a, a, a man from that time period, even if he did his job, still would have probably been a segregationist. Even you know? if he joined the clan as a spy, as a parent, we're led to play. Right, right. <laughs> um, oh, so I goodness. think this is medicine. There, uh, there's a review that went up on the site today on Book Riot that uh, Michelle, uh, one of our contributors, wrote of the book where she says, this is the medicine that we need to take right now. And I think she's right. This is what we need. We need to recognize that just because we feel warm and fuzzy things about the idea of equality as represented in To Kill a Mockingbird. We still have so many racial problems. Mm-hmm. You know? And this is, I think, the book we need to be reading right now. So, Because you, I hear all of this stuff still, all the stuff in this book. Oh, about, that's what I was going to say. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel that different. No, especially with the Confederate flag talks that are going on right now. And, you know, I live in Richmond, Virginia. It's the capital of Confederacy. Everyone down here has got a Confederate flag. Well, not everyone. I don't, certainly. But... Um, it's not uncommon to see Confederate flags flown here. And you hear the same stuff that, that Harper Lee put in the mouth of Atticus Finch mm-hmm. in 1957. The same arguments about the Southern way of life and the pride of the South and all of that. That's the stuff that I hear all the time here. And it's just. Yeah, we, we, want, we have our ways. We're proud of the South. The Confederate exactly. flag is not about black people, even though the only time we trot it out is about black people. Yeah. Like, like it's always about states' rights, except, you know, it's, but it's only when the ND, NAACP comes down and starts appointing lawyers. That's a plot point that really gets Atticus cooking, is he hates the NAACP sending lawyers down to defend black people. Um, and, you know, in, the, in uh, Uncle, Uncle Finch has scenes that are interesting. Oh boy. And he sort of says, you know, like 
you got to think about what is the South about? It's about this identity and blah, blah, blah. And they can't even see that. But the only time they ever get militant about it is when it's about black people. So it's all about black people. And Scout can't even see it. Yeah, Scout is... Scout's indicted in interesting ways mm-hmm. in in this book as well. We see her be she I think Scout has rage tears also about mm-hmm. um, what she discovers about her father and her boyfriend and her uncle that they're all that they all are so terrified of black people having rights and becoming equal and that they're hiding behind the state's rights business. But Scout's implicated as well. Like Scout thinks of herself as colorblind, which we all know is not a thing. But people do still talk about like, oh, I'm just colorblind. I don't see people's mm. color and uh, now we have in 2015 we have interesting public and social conversations about how claiming to be colorblind and attempting to be colorblind erases the problems that are caused by racism it doesn't solve them um, so we can maybe look at that in this text and use it uh, hopefully we can use it as a, another jumping off point for like no actually you don't want to try to be colorblind we should look at the real differences between the experiences of white people and black people especially in the South. But she also like agrees with Atticus that they are a simple people when they're arguing yeah. near the end of the book. About, yeah, that they're 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 still, they're they're still children as a race. Yeah, they're yeah. still in their childhood as a race. And she is very upset when she goes to Calpurnia for something and forces Calpurnia to say, no, I didn't hate oh, raising that, I you. I thought that was like, a great scene, by the way. It, it, it's very much the help there. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, this you know, young white woman needs validation that the black woman who raised her really did love her and wasn't And just she r- almost doesn't not. I mean, that's yeah, the thing that got yeah, me. Like, there's a long beat where Calpurnia, we, I think, is does like actually did hate them, but... She's performing mm-hmm. her role there and right. sort of like what else is Calpurnia? Calpurnia yeah. can't say anything. She can't other say than, anything. Yeah. No, I didn't hate you. It's it, it. This really is fascinating as the like Amanda said, the seed of To Kill a Mockingbird as the seed of Harper Lee's thinking or of what her editor got her to do. And I think the mystery of how much of it, how much of how many of the differences between Ghost at a Watchman and To Kill a Mockingbird are evolution in Harper Lee's thinking and how much was very savvy editing is a big question that we're never going to have the answer to. We also don't know that the Atticus Finch of Ghost at a Watchman 20 years later is the Atticus Finch that she would have had to kill a mockingbird's Atticus Finch grow into. (laughs) We don't, we don't have any indication that Atticus, that the Atticus of to kill a mockingbird who does defend a black man in court and who does talk about how you have to walk a mile in someone else's shoes before you can understand them. We have no reason to believe that the Lee who published to kill a mockingbird would have Atticus grow into this racist that we see in go set a watchman. So it's, that that tangled mess of like this is it's not a sequel it's not a companion but you oh can... it's so delicious it's also mm. great I love it all the the mess is so great <laughs> I heard I read that in one of the biographies um, so Atticus Finch is based on Harper Lee's father mm-hmm. that's who she based the character on and then when she was after she got Ghost Out of Watchmen back from her editor and her editor said change it and she was rewriting it to make it into Kill a Mockingbird her father who was a segregationist changed his hmm about segregation. And so we went the other way. Against. We started off as, a, you know, this, this man that she admired so much, but who had all these horrible views about race, and that's who she based the original Atticus Finch on. And then he changed his views about race, and she changed Atticus Finch. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's, 
But, <laughs> and the thing about Ghost Setter Watchmen that makes like breaks my heart a little bit is you can tell that she started she like she starts off trying to tell this story about equality, right? Yes. And how racism in the South is all, this awful thing that's going to destroy the region, and she gets so caught up in desperately trying to prove to herself and her readers that the people that she grew up with are good at heart. Mm. You know, like that's where she gets stuck. Like the last half of the book is just her trying to explain to herself that, yeah, they're horrible, but I love them anyway. And we should love them anyway. And like, I don't know, it feels like this desperate emotional personal struggle that she's working out on the page. And it's so awkward to read. Right. When we were talking offline this morning, um, we were, Amanda and I were discussing like what Harper Lee's trying to do in Ghost at a Watchman. And Amanda straight up said, this book is a failure of it, yeah. of these, of what Lee is trying to accomplish. And I, I absolutely agree with that assessment. And I think if this had been the book that were published in the fifties, it would have, you know, just disappeared and we wouldn't be talking. Like Harper Lee would have no legacy if this is the thing that had come mm. out into the world first. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I mean, the, the other thing that's important to remember about To Kill Mockingbird too is like, it's not really the story of Tom Robinson's trial. Like right. it is the story of Scout seeing her father and really the, the denouement is Jem breaking his arm and then seeing Boo Radley as a real person she should pay attention to. That's the end of the book. Mm-hmm. It's not Atticus walking out of the court, you know, you know, right. stand up girl, your father's walk. You know, it's not that moment, which is the iconic one. Like if you look at the narrative arc, like I wrote a, piece about the first line to come up where it starts with Jim's arm breaking and it ends with the aftermath of Jim's arm being broken by Bob Ewell. And it's really, a, you know, that Tom Robinson's particular case is only a mechanism for Scout and Jim's coming of age and seeing their father in a particular way, much like black people and Southern racism in Go Set of Washington is only a mechanism for Scout to realize that her father is not perfect. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's, that's what it is. And like, this goes back to the old Toni Morrison. It's not that old, but Toni Morrison's mm-hmm. argument in Playing in the Dark, you know, that American literature is built on the backs of black people, whether or not you see it. Like all of this stuff, it's not about black people. It just uses um, black people and their plight in the South to some other end. It's not an anti-racist work to kill a mocking really, It really isn't. It happens to have some stuff uh, about a trial, about a black guy in it. Uh, just as Ghost said, a Watchman is not about sort of seeing your racist relatives and going back up north and sort of joining the NAACP, it's seeing your racist relatives and going out for ice cream with Atticus and his convertible at the end. Right. I mean, that, that, that's what, the but, part but that's, that's so striking. Like, that's, I don't know if I entirely agree with you there. Okay, no, you are right. That like To Kill a Mockingbird is not a story about black people at all. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, I don't know if it's at its core a story about Scout and her dad either. I thought it was more, I don't know, I I haven't read it in a couple of years, but last time I read it, it felt more like a story about Scout realizing that her entire way of life, like everything about her neighbors and her town and her state and her family is like woven into this fabric of this horrible thing. Hmm. You know? Yeah, maybe. I, we could argue about that way. reading. Sure. Yeah. I could definitely well, see your point. It's the same in Ghost of a Watchman where she's like, she realizes that, oh, wait, I've been, whatever. She calls herself colorblind, which is such BS, but mm-hmm. I've been so blind to this. And I went to New York for a year and I came back and everyone here is horrible. Right. And it's been horrible this whole time. Mm-hmm. Right. What do I do with that? You know? And then, I mean, 
I've got rel- I've got really openly bigoted racist relatives that I go to ice cream with, you know, like, mm-hmm. what do you do with that? It's, it's yeah. a question worth asking, but it's not at the end of the day, a question about black people at all. Yeah. It's no, the it's dilemma not. of like, do you ruin Thanksgiving to point out to your racist uncle that he's racist <laughs> and scout right. and scout not only decides like not to ups, like she yells at Atticus and then she feels really terrible and apologizes. Like she has her big freak out towards the end of Ghost of a Watchmen and 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 then backpedals like she walks the whole thing back because she feels so bad that she hurt his feelings or that she attempted to hurt his feelings and like then takes her feeling bad even one step further and decides that if she were to judge her father for his racist beliefs then she would be a bigot and it's it, yeah. it, it's no, you're terrible. the reverse racist. Right, you're the right. reverse it's racist. Terrible doubt. rhetoric and it's bad logic and yes. it's just no, it's just hard no, really right, though. There's like an emotional truth to it though. Like it is prejudice and is bias, but there is like I think this but is like, a real we phenomenon. Should be biased against racism. Yeah. <laughs> well, if it's more I mean, if you want moralizing, then read philosophy, right? I mean, I guess that's there's a there's a part of me that's like, well, this is a real thing of like your parents, your fave is problematic, right? Your dad is a exactly. problem. Yeah. Um, so what do you do? And the answer, I mean, does anyone have a great answer? I don't think anyone does. I like, think that so much of the rage about this on the Internet is so hypocritical because we all go home to yeah. our racist relatives and right. we all don't talk about it and we ignore it, you know, and we just like let it lie because it's our family. And what are you going to do? You're not going to change your 80 year old grandma's opinions about black people. And you just, you don't want to have that fight. Nobody wants to have that fight. And not, I think nine out of the 10 people on Twitter who are up in arms about mm-hmm. scouts decisions at the end of the book, do the same thing that scout is doing yeah. when they go home for the holidays. Yeah. And nobody and, wants to have that fight. So it doesn't really change that much. And exactly, I, is yeah. it sort of a categorical imperative? Like we all should be having that fight all the time, kind of like voting where your individual vote doesn't really matter, but in aggregate, it totally does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that's that that's a hard truth about it, too, where this isn't easy. And it's not just like, well, change the law and everything will change. Like, you know, it's not, we can't rely upon the Supreme Court, even as mad as um, the people yeah, in Macomb County here about the federal court. That's not where the battle lines really are uh, to some degree. But, but, you know, I think so much of the love for To Kill a Mockingbird is built on the moralizing that Yes. That takes place in To Kill a Mockingbird. And so that like that kind of moralizing that Atticus does in Mockingbird that lets white people feel good about helping black people and about trying to take their perspective and being upstanding and understanding and you know, all of those things that hold up Atticus Finch as this scion of Southern gentlemanness, <laughs> like that gets exploded in Ghost Set a Watchman. And we just don't like the moralizing that we see in Ghost Set a Watchman because we can't live up to we can't live up to the things that we're trying to hold Scout accountable to in it. But we can all And she feel- lets him have it in a way that yeah. most of us don't. I mean, right, she, right. Does. She, does. she compares him to Hitler. She calls him a son of a bitch. Like, yeah. she does way more than mm-hmm. most of us would in a, cer- in a certain, in a similar situation. I just wish that she didn't decide that it made her a bigot if she were if she were to continue being angry at him like like we all do i think amanda's absolutely right that we most of us back away from the like we're not going to ruin thanksgiving to argue with our 80 year old grandmother who's not going to change but we judge hopefully like i'm judging you in my head for being racist even if i'm not yelling at my husband's uncle at in the middle of christmas dinner but are we so much better like because our silent reasons are different i don't know 
I'm not sure about that, to be honest. I mean, yeah, I think you're I, right I that the silent, the reasons for the silence mm-hmm. may be rationalized differently, but this, the net, the net effect is the same. Oh, I agree. I agree. The net effect is the same. I just hated that Scout that that Lee took Scout to that place of like not just inaction because I'm being we, intolerant of their intolerance, right? And so yeah. I'm just as bad, which is right. uh, I, which I don't think is true. You're not just as bad as a racist when you judge a racist. Hmm. Yeah, I, that's that's interesting too. Um, let's see. Uh, I, I thought I, I liked the the part where she thunders away at Atticus. I thought that was powerful to me. I liked. The revival set piece where she remembers um, them playing oh, at so revival. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, there was another set piece where she 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 uh, thought she was pregnant in sixth grade, which <laughs> was really related to nothing, but it was a nice set it's piece. It's funny. The coffee party, like I I <laughs> loved that bit where her aunt has all these local women over for coffee and she just moves through the room hearing them chit chat about their boring, terrible husbands and their boring, terrible children. And I was like, girl, I have been to that baby <laughs> shower. You know, <laughs> that, some of these things are still that very reminded real. me of the help. Yeah. 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 Like awkward girl comes home to the South and has to be awkward with neighbor girls. Like mm. It is very the help. This whole thing is the help. It's the helping. There's a little bit about that. I, I, I agree to some degree. I, not that I could have ever seen what her editor saw, but knowing what I know now that she's that she liked the childhood parts the best, it makes sense to me because like those few scenes of her as a kid were the most well constructed, had the most sort of seamless world um, to them. The other, the contemporary stuff that starts the first fifty pages is, I was like, oh my god, so this is painful. so bad. I was like, oh no, it's so bad, but. Mm-hmm. Um, it does for me at least. It got a, a much more interesting towards the end, and there were some pieces I could hold on to. It was like seeing the kernels uh, of something interesting there. Okay, uh, we got to talk I, about the packaging. Yeah, I was going to say my high horse is sitting here um, chewing on his carrot, and I got I got to uh, pay attention to him. So the way it's packaged, and I, we didn't know any of this until the book came out. I don't think right that how it was going to be put together. They, so basically, they've done everything they can. I'm pulling it off my my desk right now to make it seem like it could sit on your shelf next to kill a mockingbird with no sort of asterisk of any kind. They they went out of their way to make it look like the most recent edition that you can buy as a hardback. It has the same font, even the same sort of weird Instagram-y filter, like yeah. faux-agedness on it. Um, it doesn't it, say sequel, but it does say companion. It says, let's see here. The Amazon one says companion. I'm trying to read uh, Written in the mid-1950s, Ghost had a watchman imparts a fuller, richer understanding and appreciation of Harper Lee. Ugh. And it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it serves as an as its essential companion to To Kill Mockingbird, adding depth, context, and new meaning to American classics. So it doesn't tell us anything about its actual relation to the original book, the historical moment it was found, when it was written in, like... You know nothing. A reader it, knows nothing. I'm just imagining someone going to Barnes and Noble, like, oh my god, a new Harper Lee novel, picking it up, and I, I don't know what. I guess they're supposed to think that this was written to be another novel. Yeah, it's and maybe even maybe even just published right now, and Harper Lee just finished it. Like, it's super shady. Oh, it's so bad. This feels I don't, I don't very, know what to say. It feels very much to me like HarperCollins might as well have just marketed the thing as a sequel because they are. Doing it looks to me like they're doing everything that they can do to sell this as 
another Harper Lee book. It's a new thing. I didn't thing. say sequel. Whole... You said sequel. Yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. Like, it's not a sequel. It's a companion that sheds new light on the characters 20 years later. Yeah, they don't, they haven't given any context. This looks to me like attempting to pull the wool over readers eyes or just to pull one over you know like or you just, leave the wool that's already there i don't know right like, it's yeah i don't know what the right analogy for it is but you pointed <laughs> out on twitter this morning that um when juneteenth was published it, that did come out with yeah uh, like a forward and an explanation of what the book was and put it in the context of um just it's told, a beautiful right. edition. It was. It came out in nineteen nine, nineteen ninety nine. I said, you know, there were two thousand. I mean, that's that's the one I really want. The two thousand page unedited sequel to to Invisible Man. But you know, like this, I took the editor says I took the the part of the story that was the most coherent and could be exerted out to it. It's still four hundred pages, and it was it was it's a big publisher. Like they could have had a huge big release, even four paragraphs saying. This was the original manuscript that Harper Lee submitted to her editor uh, in June of blah, blah, blah. It was recently found um, intact, and we decided that it's interesting enough that people would want to see it. And then we could all have the moral battles about you know, whether her, her lawyer is a scumbag or like is this elder abuse, should we not be doing this? We could still have all that conversation in good faith because I was sort of to a place myself, and I don't know where you guys landed on it's like, okay – I don't love the means of how this came about, especially because I don't really know the answer is. But I asked myself the same question I kind of asked you is like, would I rather not have this than have it? And my, my answer was, I'd rather have it. But boy, I wish they were more forthright about what it was. Yeah, it. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking so much this week about you asked me last week if I thought that them that HarperCollins releasing the first chapter was a sign of confidence in the book. And I said that I thought it was a sign that they wanted to appear confident. But the whole thing had me worried that we were going to be in like an emperor's new clothes situation where it's terrible and no one talks about how it's terrible. And that hasn't happened. Like it's not great. And people are talking about how it's not great. I haven't seen anyone crowing about how wonderful Gosetta Watchman is, but it's uh, Harper Collins is not being fully transparent with the readers who just pick up this book in the bookstore. And that is telling in and of itself. They're trying to make a thing stand on its own that can't stand on its own. And so they don't want to acknowledge in writing that it can't stand on its own by writing an introduction or an explanation of how the thing came to be the best chance that the publisher has of convincing readers that this is a thing that stands by itself, that it's new, that it adds something essential to our understanding of Harper Lee is to not talk about any of the, like any of the context at all. I think that's really telling and I don't like it. It's certainly possible too, that this is all negotiated. Like I, I, you know, it's certainly in HarperCollins' interest to do it this way if their their motive is selling copies, but it could be the estate's doing. You know, it could be that they've Good been Good old buried. Angela Carter. Angela <laughs> Carter, uh, who is our uh, anti-hero yeah. to some degree. This could all have been part of the deal. I think that's very plausible. I just mm-hmm. don't know. Some, but whoever is responsible for this packaging did us all a disservice. Agreed. And I think a lot of people are, are going to be misled and not understand what they're reading. I don't think it would have cost them you know, 10% of their sales to put a four paragraph at the beginning saying, you know, here's what this is. It's super interesting. It's not the the manuscript that became to kill him. I mean, it is the manuscript and it isn't and like dwell in the complexity for three mm-hmm. sentences. Yeah, we never. Like I'm not asking you to go to prostrate before the world and say, woe is us and we did a terrible thing by publishing this. Give us even the party line here. Yeah, we never get to see how books that we 
hold up as canonical began. This so, is now the most famous like, first draft in the history of Western literature. Yeah, it's we and we never get to see those things. We don't know what yeah. our, like what the Scarlet Letter looked like two years before. Well, it there's got probably a manuscript published. somewhere for all these books, but something sure. that like two right. million people are going to read. Right, but it's never going to be published in the same no. way. This is such a unique thing that readers get to see. It's so uncommon that we get to see. Here's this book that we hold up as essentials for American literature, and then look here are the roots of that book and how different they are. Books do change a lot in editing. You know, not my novelist friends talk all the time about like, I had to rewrite the whole thing from a different character's perspective or like the thing that I thought was the beginning actually doesn't happen until the end. And what, you know, the differences between a manuscript and what gets published can be huge in the same way, but we never, ever get to see the unflattering ways that big classic books began and somebody should that should be in there there I'm so with you there should be a foreword about what this is and how we found it and how readers can approach it um look at this look at this you get to see the seeds of uh, of Harper Lee's thinking and you get to see the way that it evolved and there's this delicious mystery of how much of this was Harper Lee changing and how much was a very canny editor um seeing a story that would sell better mm-hmm. uh, I'm I mean, down I this like mental oh, rabbit hole now of like who would I want to write this introduction mm. Well, you want the editor, right? If you, if she was still alive, right. yeah, but she died in the seventies. Right, right. <laughs> I, I guess. I guess. Okay, you're playing like uh, who could you actually pretend get? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I was actually surprised they didn't publish it with some sort of introduction from none at all. I, oh. Not even from like another famous author pumping it up or well, something yeah, like right. that. If Harper Lee is really as sound of mind as her estate wants us to believe she mm-hmm. is a one page letter from Harper Lee about why this is coming out now. And Which Angela Carter could have written and, and signed as Har- Harper Lee. Yeah. yeah the whole thing yeah. is smelly. Amanda, because I don't think my amazing lawyer found it. <laughs> what was that onion headline? Oh, Harper yes, Lee's yes. Oh, third book to third be novel. titled my, like my totally not do anything wrong with the publishing of my second and third books. Amanda, just before there was, there's a little other news that came out about a possible third book. Let's all try not to vomit simultaneously. Um, where did you come down on like the sort of the ethics of how this thing came out? Like beyond the actual text we got in front of us, like, did you feel okay about the fact that we don't really know if Harper Lee authorized this, there's some discrepancies between the, what the lawyer said and what some other people are saying, like, where did you sort of come out as you were picking up the book? I just stopped caring, to okay. be honest. I mean, I, this is like, this is way ethically lazy of me, but it, it's at this point, it's such a tangled knot of you know. he said, she said, Harper Lee said, no one said, that I just can't even, there's just yeah. no way to know. There's, there's no, no way, way to, to know. And I know a lot of readers are taking this, what they interpret to be like a, a the ethical, moral stand and not reading the book and all of that. And I just don't see the point of that at all. So yeah. I... I mean, it's not going to make it sell less if you don't read. I mean, obviously, if you have like moral problems with how it happened, then don't read it. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I just it's not wrong enough for me to care, (laughs) I Mm. guess. I do wonder, too, if the Atticus is a racist headline, which I think is the right headline for covering the book, to be honest, Mm -hmm. is obscuring that ethical gray matter that was the story a lot of us on the bookish Internet were talking about. Now that's not really the story, right? Now right. it's Atticus is a racist and look what it was before. So there's a bit of a, hey, look, what in the world can that be? Uh, uh, showmanship. Well, yeah, there's maybe a little it's not hand-waving showmanship. to it. Yeah, or, or maybe they knew. Like once the book comes out, no one's going to care. 
because I look think at that it, a lot of people racist. are using the racist thing as, or wait, rephrase. People don't want to read this book because mm-hmm. Atticus Finch is a racist, and they don't want to change their view of Atticus Finch. And instead of just saying that, they're saying, "Well, it's it's an ethical gray area." Mm. The, so the discomfort the of the book, they're they're sort of transferring it onto discomfort of the the mechanism of it and being coming to light. Yeah, and I'm taking that from our comments section of yeah. like on Facebook when we talk. We did a post the other day that Morgan wrote about. Atticus being a racist and how really that's not terribly surprising. And a lot of the comments were like, well, I'm not going to read it because of the ethics of where it came mm-hmm. from. Like, that's not, that's not what we're talking about <laughs> yeah, here. I think it's that like a lot of readers don't want their sacred text to be called into question. Um, but that's like diehard book nerds, like the general, just the general reading public. Like I was at home in Kansas city over the weekend and my mom who, you know, reads, but isn't in the book internet the way that we are was like, so I saw on TV that there's a new Harper Lee book. I know that you're going to make me crazy. What's that about? <laughs> and I was like oh my god mom it's so insane like listen to this story of how they got all the things and she was like oh so it's not a sequel and i was like okay right this well, is what like that's, that's how it's I'm getting saying. sold this that's what, what they're saying. doing on the morning shows is there's a new harper lee book and like yes it's new because it's just being published but no it's not new because it was written before to kill a mockingbird was and i could see both of my parents being like oh okay my dad yeah. who reads the site and is a good reader <laughs> Didn't under really, he doesn't really understand what's going on. I mean, the, you'd yeah, have to be us to really like follow the blow by blow of like, I went to the lockbox then and there was this guy and there was this other, it's like, give me a break. It's impossible. And there's just, just that there's no even like acknowledgement that this isn't anything other than another fully formed book by Harper Lee. Just cr- it makes so me crazy. If there's a third book or a fourth uh, book sitting in Harper Lee's archives that Angela Carter is going to bring out do you guys want to see those no i want it to be over (laughs) i want it to be over but i have to say if they're there i mean it depends what it is like this for me like again i'm going with the part line we'd be told which all the asterisks in the world that that could be right but that this was the the manuscript that lee presented to her editor and presumably the editor said yes good job this is the book we would had that status of this text made me want to read it Mm-hmm. I need to. I need a story that I can believe in about the other texts. Like I, I don't know what it would be that I'd be like. What What could I be really interested and feel good about looking at again? Yeah, the fact that Harper Lee submitted this to an editor shows me that she intended it to be out in the world as it was. Yeah, which made me feel okay about it. But like, I don't know what these other books are. Supposedly, one of them is a bridge between Ghost of Watchmen and To Kill a Mockingbird, and. But if she didn't submit that to her editor for yeah. publication, it was just something she was noodling on. I don't feel really great about that. So I don't, I don't feel great about that. Yeah. I need details. I'm with you there, too. What do you guys think? Um, so that's news that came out there. Might be, what do you guys think of the idea that um, like this almost in a way feels like it could have been a sequel to Kill a Mockingbird in a different form? Like people are saying it's not a sequel. And it's not like the, it's not a sequel. But did you think like tonally and thematically it, could, it can function as a sequel? Mm, no. Okay. I don't think so. Like, there's not, a ver- I, there's not a version of this book that could have come out after To Kill a Mockingbird that Harper Lee rewrote to be an actual sequel where sort of the, the plot points are the same, where she comes back, there was a trial, her dad's there, her, her Henry's there, oh, Calpurnia's no. there. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, because, I mean, like, there's... I keep coming back to this line from To Kill a Mockingbird where Atticus says, any white man who treats a black man differently is trash. 
you know, and like mm-hmm. this Atticus is not that. Atticus. Yeah, I just don't think that the To Kill a Mockingbird Atticus grows into the Atticus that we are seeing in Ghosts That a Watchmen. Even it's as a, her segregation, his father became not a segregation. Yeah, like no, it I, one I, way and not the I other. I think but. it's the, to, this was like a whole reimagining of who the character is that she did in the process of editing and a sequel a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird would have to look like a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird not like a rewrite of Ghost at a Watchman. So the Atticus that we get in To Kill a Mockingbird that was published is like the butterfly flapped its wings and he's on a different timeline, you know, than the the Atticus we get here and there would be no need for Scout to come have back and have a reckoning and whatever kind of reconciliation she has. That's interesting. Okay. No, I mean, I think that Atticus has, he's a problematic character, obviously, and he's not like, I don't know, whatever. There's just a lot of, he's a problematic character in To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't want to get into it, but um, I just can't reconcile a character who would say something like that, who would say that people who treat people differently because of their skin color are trash becoming this. Like, mm. I, I, I have to believe that you, even as a real human being, that real human beings get better as they get older, not mm-hmm. worse. I, like, I gotta, I gotta cling to it, so. Mm. Well, let's let's put a pin in that. We'll come back when we're all 60 and see how that all turned out. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, your anthropo- anthropology is maybe more positive uh, than my there on the whole. Okay, we gotta turn we do. to the rest of the news of the work. We let's do another sponsor. Go to our next sponsor? sponsor. Yes, uh, this week's show is sponsored by Everything You and I Could Have Been If We Weren't you and I by Albert Espinoza. This is a story that takes place in a future where everyone has given up sleeping. Uh, yeah, I know. It's <laughs> <laughs> a, like a dystopia, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, well, this is my personal dystopia, <laughs> having to give up sleep. Uh, Albert Espinoza is the creator of a television series called The Red Band Society and the author of an international bestseller called The Yellow World. And in this novel, uh, characters can reveal their secrets with just a glance. What if you could feel your heart? What if I could feel your heart just by looking at you? And what if, in a single moment, I could know? that we were made for each other. Uh, Marcos, the main character, has just lost his mother. Uh, She was a famous dancer who taught him everything, and he decides that his world can never be the same without her. So just as he's about to make a radical change, a phone call turns his world upside down. Uh, Espinoza, the the author of the book, has won several battles with death, and this is why his stories, uh, they say, are so full of life. Uh, He swapped this is a uh, uh, wow uh espinoza swapped a leg and a lung for his life uh, i don't have all the details about how that happened but this this writer is determined to live his life and to win he loves to provoke people uh but he does it to make the provocations seem normal and his greatest hope that is that if you have read this book you will go off in search of your own yellow world. Uh, So the book is again called Everything You and I Could Have Been If We Weren't You and I. And it's by Albert Espinoza, who uh, created the television series, The Red Band Society. You can find it wherever books are sold, or we will have a link in the show notes. Um, So the next story is a story you guys talked about on the the show. Um, Amanda was on a couple weeks ago. Amanda, do you want to walk us through this follow-up? Sure. Um, A couple weeks ago, a library in Texas had two LGBT themed children's books uh, challenged, I guess is uh, the right terminology, a couple, a couple dozens of users of the library wanted them removed. One of the books was the My Princess Boy and the other was This Day in June. Um, the library director moved This Day in June to the adult nonfiction section but refused to do the same for My Princess Boy. And so uh, it went to a vote and commissioners decided to not ban them. 
basically. Uh, it says there was a three-hour-long public meeting uh, on Tuesday in the county that drew supporters and opponents of the book. This is my favorite. One Hood County resident accused the library of anti-religious sentiment, saying, this library, as many on the progressive left do, hides their contempt for Judeo-Christian values behind the right of free speech. Because we forgot what the separation of church and state are. <laughs> hides their contempt behind... How dare you use the Bill of Rights to have a, an opinion? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't. I mean, the, the First Amendment protects my contempt, but you don't. The Bill of Rights does not protect discrimination. Like, those are categorically. Right, right. That's like, not my favorite thing about that particular argument. It's like, it's saying you're comparing apples to apples, but you. Read are. the Constitution before yeah, right. you talk about it, please. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the librarians defended the decision to have the books, obviously, saying that libraries serve the entire population of the community and there are LGBTQ people in that community and they deserve to have books about their experience. And so the, um, yeah, the county declined to remove the books. Good job, Hood County. Yeah, way to go, Texas, which is a thing I don't think I've ever said in my life. (laughs) Um, Let's see. There's a a storm coming. And it's, I don't know if this is going to be it, but it's going to happen with Amazon finally, I think. Um, This week, the American Bookstores Association and a group, I think the Authors Guild. Authors United. Authors United submitted a brief to the Department of Justice to investigate Amazon's abuse of its dominance in the book market. Um, they've asked, I think the ABA has this, this before, got nowhere. Um, but the most recent, if longtime listeners of the show will know, we've covered the uh, Amazon's. Uh, Negotiations, let's call them. That's like that's like the Cor- negotiating with the, the Corleones. But anyway, mm-hmm. with a, with Hachette, um, and then uh, before that, it was Macmillan, I think, where there were overt changes to the availability of certain books from certain publishers based upon the status of those publishers' agreement with Amazon. And finally, you know, and I think it really has has merit at this point. And I don't know enough about the law to say that if Amazon has behaved monopolistically or monopsonistically, uh, the only buyer versus the only seller in a market. But I think it is time for the the DOJ to really take a look because Amazon is dominant. They've done some things on the outside like pulling buy buttons from LBGTQ books because of a mistake, quote unquote, in the algorithm. Things of this nature where they do, they are so powerful, they are so influential that they really need, you know, uh, strict scrutiny because they, they they have such capacity to, to to do wrong here in the book industry. I, I'm more neutral on Amazon than a lot of people that are close to the book world. I think a lot of things we like as readers now wouldn't be where they are without Amazon e-reading and audiobooks being perhaps principal among them. They're a big part of my current reading life. Um, that if they didn't champion them and you know do Audible and the Kindle and things like that, I don't know that we'd have the choices we have now. But on the other hand, they're to the point where, as they say here, Amazon now controls the sale of more than 75% of online sales of physical books, more than 65% of ebook sales, more than 40% of sales of new books, and 85% of ebook sales of sub published titles. I think that you have the strongest case that Amazon's a monopoly actually in the self published world. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, you know, really, and they, they have very little. Um, collective bargaining, at least if you're a Hachette author, you have Hachette to fight your battles, or if you're a PRH author, you have Penguin Random House to fight your battles, but if you, they do sell 85% of the ebook sales, you've got to play ball with Amazon, and they have enormous pricing and leverage power over the individual that. It's something where I think this is where the federal government needs to get involved, and I don't, like, again, I'm not, I, I don't know of any specific things that really would say Amazon needs to be fined or broken up or whatever the things that you do um, if you have a real active monopoly. But it, it's scrutiny needs to be ongoing here. Does it? Do you guys feel the same way? Like, where do you come down on yeah, this? Yeah, I do. I don't have the problem with Amazon that 
a lot of the like cheerleaders for indie bookstores uh, hold up as the problem. I don't think that Amazon is problematic simply because it threatens independent bookstores or provides an alternative to them or sells books at rates that other retailers can't sell them. That's how competitive business works. Um, And I don't believe that as a reader, there's like an ethical way to buy your books and a less ethical way you buy your books where you want to buy your books based on all of your personal criteria for determining which businesses you support and how much you're going to pay for things. But I do think that we are at a point where Amazon's business practices deserve investigation. And as you're saying, scrutiny um, and some attention from the government to look at uh, to look at how they have achieved the position that they're in and how they are maintaining the position. Because I think we all have a sense that Amazon is very ruthless and that uh, Jeff Bezos is ruthless and on a mission for the long game. Uh, and where what his end goal is remains mysterious, um, or what his plans are to get there also remain mysterious. But it's eighty five percent of ebooks of self published authors, and you know, like one of the ways that that happens is that if you are self-published and you sell your book just at Amazon, you get mm-hmm. like 70%, uh, right? It's like 70 yeah. cents on the dollar. Versus 30%. Right. Versus if you sell at Amazon and other online retailers, you only get 30%. So you can make twice as much per copy of your book. Uh, if you sell exclusively at Amazon, that's a powerful, persuasive tool to get people to only sell their self-published books at Amazon, to be locked into Amazon's marketplace, to not be building audiences elsewhere. Um, it's it, it's definitely worth asking questions about. Yeah, I, I have to say though, I'm not. I don't know, and maybe there's wrongdoing on Amazon's part. Maybe there isn't. There's certainly some smoke. There possibly could be an active fire blazing back there that we need to take care of. I'm not super hopeful that it's going to happen anytime soon. That you know, if there's something going on, they're going they're going to fix it. I mean, I guess I, mean, I was. What do you think is going to be the result of this letter? Well, if I mean. If, I guess, let's see, what's the most famous monopoly case? AT&T literally get broken up into separate companies? Yeah, or Microsoft. Or yeah. That's Microsoft. not from a letter? Well, no, from the, the investigation, right? Like if the DOJ says, hey, you know what, they're right. We really should put some some people on this. Let's well, open that's what I'm asking. Is this yeah. enough for the DOJ to actually? I don't know the answer to that. It yeah. feels like this is weird timing because nothing has happened. Like, where was this letter last year when it was first Hachette and then right Simon? It was it Simon and Schuster was the second publisher that the buy I don't think I, the, the, I think I don't think SNS ever got to that point. We heard that there were there was saber rattling right, behind right. the scenes, but I don't ever think it burbled up into the actual retail experience. The Hachette thing went on for so, so long. long. There yeah. were so many authors whose books you could not buy on Amazon or whose books you could not pre-order on Amazon because Amazon and Hachette couldn't agree on terms that it, it I, I'm curious about the timing here. Like there's this is not striking while the iron is hot. Yeah, Jen Jen Northington, who's our events director, actually put this in, in our back channel initially when I first saw it. And I was like, why now? Like, their case would have been much stronger three years ago because now indie bookstore openings are up. Profits of publishing is up. Book sales are up over the last three years. So, like, your your case for wrongdoing on Amazon's part was stronger three years ago. Now, that doesn't mean that their business practices have changed um, for the worse or the better since then. That, that's not necessarily the case. But in terms of what evidence you have, you could have had in 2011 that book sales are down, that indie bookstores are closing. Borders has just closed. Like they're bringing up borders closing. It happened like four years. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like it, it does seem like they maybe missed their moment or maybe there's something else we we don't know. Maybe they think this taking the buy buttons off 
Hachette. And according to the law, there may be some sort of anti-competitive practice there, unfair business practice. If you have a monopoly and you take away your ability to someone to sell goods on your platform, that is super bad, mm-hmm. uh, it seems to me. Um, so we'll see. Like the, 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 the only more interesting ongoing story than uh, the Harper Lee saga is whatever is going on with Amazon this week uh, <laughs> in books and publishing. Okay, let's see. How are we doing on time? Oh, boy. You wanna, oh, boy. Well, speaking of books and profit, yeah, um, we sort of saw some feathers ruffled this week when uh, the head of Penguin Random House Canada, his name is Brad Martin, uh, said in a column discussing the Penguin Random House merger that he's not interested in a book that's going to generate less than $10,000 in revenue. Uh, or Sorry, $100,000. He's not interested in any book that's going to generate less than $100,000 in revenue unless the editor or publisher has a compelling vision for the book or the author. Uh, okay, that leaves a lot of room open. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people upset about him saying that he doesn't want to publish anything that will generate less than $100,000 in revenue, what? which takes about seven. That's only you only have to sell between seven and 10,000 copies of a book, depending on the list price to yeah. generate the $100,000 in revenue. Um, but one of the uh, detractors here um, quoted in the piece that we'll link to in the show notes says that um, that's not he, he just says that very few books actually sell that many uh, and mm. that it's not reasonable. Um, and there's been a whole lot. I've, I've seen so much hand wringing about like, well, art and the value of art. How can you not publish a thing just because it won't make any money? <laughs> like art for art's sake is good. That's a good thing. I believe in that. But art that is produced and sold by a business has to make money in order for the businesses to continue existing. Existing. And uh, man, I just can't fault a publisher for having a baseline revenue requirement for books they're going to publish. Yeah, this is a case to me of like, no, I was going to say like, this is. Yeah. This is one of those things someone got in trouble for telling the truth sort yeah. of situations, well, right? Publishing just doesn't like to acknowledge oh. that it's commerce built on art. We, I think publishing likes to think of itself as, well, that other, the piece about um, from a bookseller that we were reading this morning that referred to book selling, as, uh, book selling and publishing as a noble industry. Oh. Uh, we're selling stuff. People make a thing and we sell it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it also is like there's publishing is so, I mean we know this like the 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 sales numbers aren't even public like another and like it's so crazy. But like this is one of those situations where you get some insight into A that there's actually dollar figures attached to things mm-hmm. and, and B how few copies most titles actually sell like Okay, you have to sell four thousand hard hard covers at twenty five bucks a piece to make a hundred. That that's no ebook, that's no audiobook, that's no paperback. That's just for that's not very many copies. Like that's what people don't. You know, this is sort of going back to my hobby portion. People don't really know what a draft is. They don't. Well, they wouldn't know what's but what's told in to them in the in the cover of um, Ghost of the Watch, and they just they just don't know. And so no it feels scandalous. Yeah. So there's mm-hmm. no reason for them to know really. But like. People think like if you have a book in a bookstore, you must be selling a billion copies. And the fact of the matter is, is you really don't. This seems to me for Penguin Random House, which was was a sixty percent of the trade English trade in the English speaking world. Yes. This seems to me a relatively low bar. Well, yeah, this is Penguin Random House Canada, so it makes you which you know can't Canadian book sales versus U.S. book sales. That's a whole other question. Yeah. But uh, a man named Brian Kaufman, who's the publisher of Anvil Press in Canada, thinks that this number is unrealistic because he says most books in Canada don't sell anywhere near 
the figures to like I guess between the seven and ten thousand copies that it would take uh, to generate to Brian right. sells in companies beyond Canada <laughs> right well this is you know and Penguin Random House I'm interested in what the baseline revenue number is for Penguin Random House in the US um, if it's a hundred thousand if this guy is saying a hundred thousand dollars in Canada presumably someone is having this conversation in the PRH offices in New York and I would like to know uh, where they fall down on, you know, how much money does a book need to, how many copies do we need to think that we can sell in order to publish this thing? I hope that they're having that conversation, at least. Like, we, we sort of have talked on the show several times, and I know, Jeff, like, you and I share an interest in what happened, like, what would happen to publishing if there were zero dollars to yeah. spend on books? And it seems that the way that we could be moving is fewer books being published each year, um, and that if it depends on... If getting published depends on saleability, then either it's fewer books of higher quality or fewer books with more commercial appeal or both. Um, and people do like to worry that publishing exclusively things that will sell, um, that, you know, letting publishing be ruled by the commercial marketplace will lead to like the fall of literature. I mean, I guess the other I mean, way. You, Go ahead a minute. You need to read a little bit wider. If you're really that surprised that one of the big five, and I mean, these companies are owned by multi-billion dollar national, international companies. <laughs> right. If you're really surprised that they're like profit driven, I don't really know what to tell you. If you want to read something from a publisher that's interested primarily in experimental or really, you know, artistic books, then you need to read a small press. Like that's just an independent small press that's doing it more for the love. But even they need to turn a profit to stay open. So, you know, sorry, welcome to capitalism. Well, I also think too that you forget that big companies not being interested in things also makes room for smaller companies to be interesting. Like use our own example, Mm -hmm. like that the New York Times doesn't care about um, three three on a theme with all YA books about ice cream. Like, that gives us room to do something a little bit different, right? So we can care about things a little smaller scale. Now, we're not as big as the New York Times yet, yes. um, he said. Oh, we're um, coming. Uh, smirkingly. <laughs> I'm um, coming for you, coming But like Johnny. it gives us some room because if PRH was like, you know what, we're going to publish every freaking book in the world, that's actually much more terrifying <laughs> to me than PRH saying, you know what, there's some books that are that are small niche things that, you know, aren't are really our business. Like I... That that seems to be sort of healthy in a vibrant ecosystem, but maybe maybe I maybe I'm turning into a libertarian in my old age um, because, but I can't get worse in my old age because Amanda said so. No. Um, okay, so yeah. let's do our last sponsor, which is us. It's us. It's us. Hey. And what what are we what are we doing? What's going on here? We're having a party. <laughs> We're throwing Book Riot live which is Whee! a two-day reader convention taking place in New York City on November 7th and 8th. And we're going to have a ton of authors, including Margaret Atwood. Yay! And Alexander Chi, who we just announced this week, and uh, N.K. Jemison and Beverly Jenkins, and Sarah McLean, who is a house favorite, and Daniel Jose Older, who is also a house favorite. Most of these authors are house favorites. So if you've been listening to this show and reading Book Riot, you have read the you've read about these people. Hopefully you have read some of their books. Um, panels are going to cover all kinds of stuff. We've also got somebody from the um, Harry Potter Alliance, somebody from Lambda Literary, Roberta Kaplan, who um, litigated the case that got the Defense of Marriage Act struck down is going to be speaking. So the Book Riot social justice uh, focus will also be present, but uh, is just a piece as it uh, tends to be of all of our programming. We're going to have games. There are fancy cocktail parties in the rare book room at the Strand. We're going to do live recordings of this podcast and all the other podcasts so you can watch us be awkward at each other in person. (laughs) What do I do with my arms? (laughs) 
Where do I look? Where do I look? <laughs> Amanda will inevitably have some embarrassing moment with an author, and you definitely want to be there to see that. Mm-hmm. It's going to be all of them. I'm just all of them. We should have like a little drone with a camera follow you around just so we make sure we get it on tape whenever. <laughs> sort of ambient. Put a filming. GoPro on my head. Yes. Amanda GoPro. <laughs> the Amanda That's Cam. Amanda Cam. <laughs> A camda, a camda, a camda. Part of our promo should just be me telling horrible stories about the times that I met. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have a whole panel of just Amanda telling horribly awkward. <laughs> uh, and so we're we have a bunch of vendors that are going to be there too. So you can you can check out some merchandise and find out about new books that are coming out. You maybe do your bookish Christmas shopping there. It's going to be early November. Oh, That's a right. thing that you could do. Uh, so we got an offer. So we're going to give you twenty bucks off your ticket if you use the author code Wheelhouse just for Book Riot podcast listeners. Go to bookriotlive.com, spelled out, no spaces, because as you know, there are no spaces in your URLs, but I felt like compelled to say that anyway for some reason. <laughs> bookriotlive.com, and when you check out, use offer code wheelhouse to get yourself 20 bucks off, and then you'll probably just spend on books anyway. But you know what? That's okay. That's okay. We support that. We got one pick for a new book this week. I'm. It's my next book on Audible. Uh, it's my on uh, audiobook, excuse me. And you guys have already read it, so you, you p- pitch people who aren't me about why they should care about Between the World and Me. Well, Toni Morrison called it required reading. So and we're what done. Else and do that's you our show. And then, <laughs> draw, I would drop yes. this mic except it's really expensive. <laughs> so I'm not going to drop so, it. But what is it what, how's it set up? Like, okay, what, so Ta-Nehisi Coates is, I think, the best public thinker that we have writing and discussing race in America. Um, if you are talking and thinking about race on the internet, you have definitely come across his work on The Atlantic and elsewhere. And this is written as a letter to his 15-year-old son about what it means to be black in America. Um, it's part memoir, stories about his own life and his experiences as a black man in America, part sort of projection of what his son will experience as a black man in America and how those experiences will differ or be the same as his own. And also a look back to Uh, the generations of black Americans who came before him and how inextricable the subjugation of black bodies is and has been from the functioning of American society. Does that basically, Amanda's read it too. (laughs) Yeah, I actually, I did the same thing. I did a um, a YouTube video about this book uh, for this week and I had so, so many takes, stops and starts. Like it's just difficult to discuss, you know, I feel like, the three of us are fairly literate when it comes to talking. Like we can talk about race. I can talk about it. Right. Like I'm here for that, but uh, I don't know. This book blew my brain open. You know, I mean, I'm a person of color. I read and I talk about race a lot every day, but there was stuff in here that I had never thought of. You know, I'm not black. I just can't talk to that experience. And I had never thought about the stuff in this book that he's saying to his son. It's so heartbreaking and just, man, it's so important. It's so important. Just when read it. Like he, if you have, if you've got 30 bucks and you can buy, go to Soda Watchmen or you can buy this book, buy this book. Well, you know? I, I think I remember when you read Jasmine Ward's memoir, Men We Reaped, that you tweeted mm-hmm. something about um, knowing that you, your experience as a person of color in the South was one thing, but that uh, the realization of how different a black person's experience is from mm-hmm. any other person of color in the South or in America in general. And that was where I like... Uh, I'm a a white woman who grew up in the Midwest and I live in the South now. And so I can know sort of, uh, I can know like logically and objectively that black Americans experiences are different, but Coates gives voice to so many particular things. Yeah. It blew my 
uh, it, it blew my understanding open more. Not that I could possibly understand fully what that experience right, exactly. yeah. is, but he um, just unapologetically, and it's it's very unvarnished, um, this look at at what his experiences have been and what it means to be black in the U.S. And I think we talk about like with memoir and with talking about race, we throw around, you know, the words about like brave and candid a lot. But um, I think this book deserves that. And it's also worth saying, I think, and one of the reasons I like Coates so much is that he he writes articles and and very good ones on, on the Internet and in print. But he's also a, a, he's a historian, like he is mm-hmm. as well read on history, uh, particularly of race in American history, as anyone I see write publicly about it that, well, mm-hmm. frankly, anyone, because scholars, actual like professors don't write this much publicly. Yeah, they're not. In the I mean, so he know, I mean, his, his own personal history, but also his, the, the depth and the breadth of his understanding um, and the context he can give his own experience. Uh, I haven't read the book, but that's one thing I've always been so super compelled about him by. Not, I'm not trying to denigrate like the personal essay, but this is not necessarily what that is because he has this whole other um, tool toolbox uh, that he brings to bear on his writing about race. Um, he's always the first person. I mean, I've read him for a long time. Uh, I think when he was doing like a, he was reading the complete Eve the Wharton on his blog for the Atlantic. Anyway, I think that's how I found him initially. But whenever something happens about race, um, I, I always am waiting for Coates to 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 write about it because that's what I'm looking forward to the most. And and Lord knows there's enough opportunity to read about it yeah, um, with, these days, especially this week with the Harper Lee book out and the chatter about Ghost Set a Watchman and all the stuff that is going on with, you know, the Confederate flag and the things that are taking place in the South. He makes the point, I I just think, excellently in Between the World and Me that we have to look at how this country was founded and it was Mm -hmm. founded on slavery and the uh, slavery. Many of the states would not exist without slavery. Mississippi even like issued an official statement about how slavery was a key part to of its existence uh, in the 1800s. And the fact that slavery was abolished doesn't mean that the positions and the experiences of black people have improved. um, And he draws the line straight through from the way that the country was founded um, and how black people were treated when the country was founded to where we are today and how black people are treated in the country today. And those things are connected. Uh, They're shaped by each other. The fact that things have improved in some ways doesn't mean that racism is over. Mm -hmm. Um, This is it's it's just a really important, excellent book. Yeah, that it reminds something he tweeted about recently came to mind when I was reading Ghost of the Watchmen, especially that part about, you know, Atticus and uh, uh, Scout saying, you know, black people are in their childhood. And, and Coates tweeted or wrote, and I can't remember which one it was, says there's nothing wrong with black people that the end of white supremacy wouldn't fix. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's one of those things that I feel like I knew but had never heard articulated quite like, you know, quite so bluntly as that. Like the problem with black people is white people. Uh, and that whereas Scout and uh, – Scout and Atticus seem to think it's something about them, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's something wrong with that with with black people, and you know, his the way he thinks is, is politically and economic corollary of Morrison's own thinking about literary history and black people in American literature. It's like this is the substrate upon you know American racism, particularly against black racism, is the substrate on which the country is built. Um, and any sort of trying to erase that or forget it um, is part of the problem and dangerous and angle stand. 
uh, for it. So I'm looking for, I think probably my most anticipated book of this, the last half of the year, even goes into Watchmen as a literary curiosity. I was, yeah. I was interested mm-hmm. in, but as An like, <laughs> as a, as a sort of living, breathing document, um, I, I'm as excited for this as I've been for anything coming out uh, really recently. And that's our show. That is our Ooh. show. Uh, you can find show notes for this and all the other previous episodes at bookwrite.com slash podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at the Jeff O'Neill, O-N-E-A-L, no apostrophe, because apostrophes are the worst and no one likes them in the computer world. You can follow Amanda at Twitter at I'm Amanda Nelson, also no apostrophe and I'm. Uh, I am A-M-A-N-D-A-N-E-L-S-O-N. Rebecca Shinsky at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. You can, what else can you do? Oh, uh, Scribd, scribd.com slash bookwrite. Get your free 30 months. You can go listen to Between the World and Me right now. It's about three and a half hours. This is a shortish kind of book, so you could do it in a nice weekend. Um, and get your 30-day free trial. Thanks for sponsoring the show. Our book sponsor was? Our book sponsor was everything you and I could have been if we weren't you and I. And you can go to Bookwrite Live. Com to find out more about our event happening over two days in November here in New York City. And if you want to buy a ticket, you can get $20 off at checkout with the offer code WHEELHOUSE. Thank you, guys. This was a good episode. I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed reading the book and talking and fighting about the book with you guys. Always and a pleasure We're going to continue yeah. to do so I'm just, with book three and book oh, four no. and book five. And then eventually we just cry for an hour. And then there's the heat oh. death of the universe and finally the love. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.